The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. All right, so we obviously are going to be continuing our our work in the book of James, and as we do, uh, it's been a few weeks now, we had the privilege of giving special attention um, a few weeks ago to a combination of James and and priming us for what I would argue is... um, the, the high point in the letter. Um, Dr. William Varner has been the, the most influential in terms of uh, giving me some direction with the larger picture of James and specifically um, by drawing out the uniqueness and the weightiness of 313 through 18. It is different, not just by way of uh, subject, but by way of emphasis and its place in the letter. So we, we gave special attention to that a few weeks ago, and then uh, we also kind of uh, uh, dovetailed some emphasis on James and wisdom with um, the celebration of the incarnation of Christ. And then obviously Pastor Frank gave us a, a, a strong Christmas charge even when we were in the midst of shivering in the, the kitchen area there and, and the Lord gave grace accordingly. And then Psalm 15 to prime us and start the year. But now we're back to our, our regular pattern in James. And uh, with that, just want to draw out some things for you. We're um, just wrestling through and working through this. I think back to something that happened on December 21st. And Maybe some of you um, keep tight calendars, and you can go back and review hour by hour. And if you are, if you do, then you're a kindred spirit, and I, I'm grateful for your attentiveness to how life goes and what you can do to make it slightly better maybe next time. But that being said, December 21st, and it was about 22, um, uh, 2,200 hours, somewhere around there, or no, about 2,100 hours. And I saw something a magical awaking in a child. And it wasn't just, oh, it's Christmas, and that's special, and there's something neat happening. No, there were um, a very precise context. There were several of us that were gathered together here in the building. We we're actually back in the fellowship hall, or the kitchen area, whatever we're calling it, um, living room. I don't know what it is. It's just the big room that we, we eat in and gather. And so we were in there together, a number of us, and Charlie had something uh, that it just took my attention. I thought, this, this is a, I'm getting to witness something special here. Um, she, I would argue, developed a, had a, an awakening of an affection for, her, for the whiteboard. And um, as one who makes constant use of multiple whiteboards, even I was uh, Skyping with Matt the other day, and I, it, it looked like I was chasing a fly with my eyes. It was actually, I was looking at different whiteboards and wanting to be like, oh, this, and I'm like, no, I can't. It, it, that one's on the wall and that one's over there on the floor and it doesn't matter, but I can't access all of them all the time. But there's a, an affection for whiteboards. And so um, it was uh, quite warming to my own heart to see that she was zealous to take up the marker and time and time again draw before a crowd as they yelled back words of, uh, of interpretive conclusions to her. And it was, just, it was just a really special moment. Now, others may have concluded that she was just really enjoying Pictionary with us. And, you know, it's a nice time of fellowship, a simple time of fellowship. Uh, We gathered some insights about one another in terms of both skill and interpretation of images and thoughts, even what Anton does or does not look like. But that being said, somebody could have said, oh, it was just Pictionary. That's what she was enjoying. But I know better. She was experiencing the joy of shaping her thoughts on a board of dynamically brainstorming as images and sometimes words opened eyes to clear conclusions. And while we know precious little of James' social engagements, I don't know if he did things like that. I don't know what the nature of when the church gathered. I think sometimes we can be overly pious. You know there were people, and they enjoyed one another's company, and they, they probably did a range of things. And certainly we know they um, had enjoyable Uh, festive times, as it were. And so we don't know his social engagements with those within the church, but I am confident that he too would have been in the company of those of us who love whiteboards. And I could imagine him teaching through the principles and precepts of what now constitutes the letter of James, and having just finished his engagement on the tongue, and with it perhaps the high point of his engagement of the critical or central emphasis on being made perfect, complete, and mature by way of the wisdom from above, and then being maybe asked a question. So you remember when we got to the first part of chapter 3 and we got to the, the nature of the tongue and it was the perfect man. Who can tame the tongue? It's the perfect man. Well, that's impossible. No, it's not impossible because you have to do it. Well, how can you do it by way of wisdom from above? And so it was a clear high point of a major emphasis, perfection, completion, maturity. And again, 
we don't know the historic context. Did James teach his first? Did he just do pen to paper? But you could imagine with me, if you will, he was teaching through it. And then perhaps his own Andre raised their hand and said, James, you introduced us to wisdom at the beginning of this engagement. And you have silently and but plainly woven it throughout the whole of your teaching. But how would you describe the wisdom from above? Because it's clearly been present. It's clearly necessary. So would you describe it? And I, in that context, could see James thinking for a moment, then carefully uncapping his Expo low-odor chisel-tip dry erase quill, and first writing, the wisdom from above does not have bitter jealousy. That's how it starts. It doesn't have bitter jealousy. It doesn't have selfish ambition. No, rather it's first pure. And then you might ask to make sure, are we, are we clear on this? Because I'm painting a picture. I'm not going to give you a direct answer. This is the wisdom from above. I'm going to paint a picture. And he's going to maybe emphasize, this is important, so I want you to follow. Because then it's peaceable. Something I'm going to emphasize again in just a moment. But also, I'd maybe say it's considerate. It's submissive. It's full of mercy and good fruits without doubting and without hypocrisy. And such is why I'm confident James too would love whiteboards because they give words a place to take up residence before us and we can reflect on them, we can chew on those words and we're changed by them. Uh, it's really kind of a reverse pictionary as it were, words given to us so that an image might be clearly developed. Words that show us the wisdom that is so critical to James's instruction throughout this letter. He doesn't just say, this is the wisdom from above. He says, this is a full description of the wisdom from above. These are the, the elements and characteristics, things you can and cannot expect. And why is that important? Well, because if we lack that, then we're not going to be perfect, complete, and mature. If we lack that, then, then everything he's taught us to present really doesn't have the, the energizing force behind it that we need. And so it's reasonable to say, would you please help me understand what does it look like? And that's exactly what he's doing for us. And this is why I spent the better portion of my message on December 18th giving so much attention to developing the centrality of this critical element throughout this letter to present, drawing out for you the role of wisdom's participation in the Lord's perfecting work of his people in each of the respective sections of the book that we've covered to present. And also with this, demonstrating the pattern of contrast that wisdom so often employs. We see that with Hebrew wisdom literature all the time. We have a, a positive and a negative, or a negative and a positive, over and over, and he does that pattern after pattern after pattern, and he's going to do it when we ask, James, would you describe wisdom? And he's going to do that again. He's going to show us a positive and negative, a negative and a positive. So because we've already done this work, and because it's readily available for review, I'm going to narrow our attention to the seventh major section now of the letter, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 of the book of James. But before we read our passage together, I'd like to first remind you of the one other time that James directly references wisdom in this letter. So we've already mentioned that he weaves it all throughout the letter, but there's only one other overt direct reference to the wisdom from above, and that came fairly early in the book, at a really critical point in the letter, I would argue, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And it's in this first verses of the first major section, a portion of the letter that, again, I'm increasingly persuaded captures the heart of the letter. I know there's a place and a value in, the, in terms of the skill of writing with where you put certain things and how you develop and cultivate, and different authors have different styles and approach. But I think James, in, in providing these introductory verses, really wasn't just setting a tone, wasn't just kind of warming us up to all that's going to be developed. I think he really put a foundational cornerstone there that if you missed that, not that if you weren't here, but if you missed that in your engagement and study of the book of James, then the rest of the letter is going to, it might just look like a hodgepodge of proverbial-like statements. And maybe you're wondering, well, how's that? It, they're ideals. You're going to miss so much of the book. So let's read this foundational passage first and then give our attention to our primary text, James chapter 1. So let's, again, we're going to focus on James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and then 3, 13 through 18. So James writes, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now again, for those of you who have been walking with us through most, if not all, of James to present, I hope that even those introductory verses are flooding your mind with so many things. Perhaps because if you're here on Wednesdays, we sing that passage over and over and over again. And what's that do? It has a very Psalms-like influence in terms of it cements itself into your mind. You can draw it up quickly and it impacts how you think. But I want it to come to mind not just because of repetition, but because of its weight of influence. So perhaps most plainly among the many thoughts that may be flooding into your mind are the fact that um, various trials are indispensably valuable and are being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Something that we might have wrestled with differently a few months ago. When we first engaged that, it, was, it wasn't a novel subject. We're familiar with suffering and the role of suffering, but to consider it all joy. And then we had to get to the next week, and I was all but apologetic that I didn't give you more in terms of I should have set you up with the way that we're going to do this is by way of the wis- asking for wisdom that God generously provides. And so there was a process. There was a measure of stepping, as it were, as we progressed through the book. But now I hope that you're starting to see all the more clearly that's an indispensable feature of our goal, being made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That suffering and struggle and trials are, by God's design, indispensably valuable. A process made successful also specifically by way of the wisdom from above. If you lack the wisdom from above, then those bumps, scrapes, bruises, and breaks, they're just that. They're bumps, scrapes, bruises, and breaks. They're of no value. That's really unfortunate. But if you submitted yourself to the wisdom from above, then they're useful tools. So a wisdom that we don't naturally possess. And so if we don't naturally possess it, but they're indispensable, what do we do? We ask for it. And it's supernaturally and generously provided when we ask for it in faith, a matter that also establishes the foundation for our understanding that really there are two paths throughout this letter. Uh, James will speak of two paths as it relates to wisdom working itself out in our lives. The first path being that of the mature or righteous man forged by the wisdom from above and the other of the the path of the double-minded man who, as we will see today, receives a clear rebuke for his disassociation with truth, having embraced not wisdom, but its vile counterpart. And so with this foundation in view, let's read our primary text together, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming, from, coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I hope that you're seeing what James is providing for us here as he paints a clear image of wisdom by way of describing its qualities. So again, he's taken to the whiteboard, as it were, and and, and we're calling out, you're describing this. No, not that. You're describing, it, it, it's, it's, it's the fruit of the Spirit. No, it's, it's close though, right? It's, it's very similar, but not, no, that's not it. We're, we're in James. It's the, and then you finally realize as it takes shape, ah, oh, it's the wisdom from above. That's what he's painting for us. It's not necessarily the quality of a wise person. It's not that a wise person does these things. And that's effectively what he's been doing up to this point in terms of you need wisdom to tame the tongue, to have pure and unfiled religion, to receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. All those things are features of a wise person, somebody who's walking in the wisdom. But this is wisdom itself. He's describing, he's painting a picture, he's giving an unpacking of the wisdom from above. And now, as we consider James's development of wisdom over these next two weeks, we'll break the text up into three parts of two, so six sections in total. And the first part consists of verses 13 and 14. This will be our, our emphasis today. The, in going into um, preparing for this morning, it was going to be 313 through 18, but 
Now it's 3, 13 to 14. That's going to be our point of emphasis today. So we have um, James's commanding introduction of wisdom. And it's going to make sense in just a little bit here. He gives a, a few imperatives, a few commands to open up this section. And this is the first one in verse 13. So his commanding introduction of wisdom. Then we have James's commanding introduction of wisdom's counterfeit. And to, uh, to, to present, I've consistently referenced it as the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. And I'm being maybe overly generous. Um, sometimes we are overly generous with our words. We have people that are maybe coworkers or acquaintances, and we're saying, oh, that's a, that's a friend of mine that does this, this, and this. And maybe they really wouldn't be in your friend circle. And so maybe I'm being overly generous in terms of my language here because wisdom's counterfeit is not really wisdom, right? But it gives us an image of the nature of a different kind of wisdom, a, a lack of wisdom, which is, again, the wisdom from below. So I'll use that interchangeably, wisdom's counterfeit and the wisdom from below. The second part is verses 15 and 16, the origin of wisdom's counterfeit. It comes from somewhere. It has, a, it has a place in which it's drawn from as well. We know where our wisdom is drawn from, and it has its counterfeit. The outcome of, and then we have in verse 16, the outcome of wisdom's counterfeit. There is an end of this wisdom or its impact. The third part consists of verses 17 and 18, the origin and nature of wisdom. Specifically, where does the wisdom from above come from? Well, we've clued ourselves in from above. And that language isn't just language that, I'm like, uh, that I enjoyed from earlier in the letter, and so I'm trying to appropriate it and put it here. He duplicates that language. Remember the father of lights who gives all good things? He's the, he gives that from above. Well, he's also giving wisdom from above. And then finally, verse 18, wisdom has its own outcome. It has its own um, results, as it were. So that being said, it's, it's quite plain, again, we see in even that structure. Um, I, I've, on my own little notes, I, I did A, B, 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 A, A, and you'd be like, well, how's that helpful? Above, below, or above, below, 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 above, above. And so there's clearly two paths being expressed here. Uh, one formed by the wisdom from above, the other as its counterfeit, or as we've again referenced throughout the study, the wisdom from below. It, which is, again, no wisdom at all. But he's, he's doing that contrast. James, what does it look like? And he's very skillful, and he's employing that style of Hebrew wisdom in terms of it's this and it's not this. So if you're doing this, then you've missed it, but it is this. And so he's giving us that counterbalance, as it were. Okay, with that being said, let's begin now with verse 13. Uh, the first section, and with it the first part of the first section, James is commanding introduction of wisdom, where again, he states, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. Now, we're accustomed to James introducing a new major section by way of employing a nominative of direct address, usually brothers, accompanied by a command and a change of subject. We, we've seen that pattern um, I think five times now. So you're getting more and more used to it. You you're begin to almost look for it. It's not just that we're looking for a break in the chapter or a break in our study in terms of how we can section this up. I think there's an intentionality to how James crafted it. And so usually we look for those kind of patterns. However, we've already observed that he also will introduce a few of his major sections by posing a question, such as we see here. He is employing a, a rhetorical question as he's not awaiting a list of persons who are contemporary sages and the various New Testament fellowships that are receiving this letter. He's not saying, who is wise and understanding among you, and then assembling a team of wise men and wise women. He's not looking for a direct response. He's putting out a question to direct a conversation, as it were. So our question might now be, why is he framing this direct engagement of wisdom with a question? And my personal conclusion is that he's exercising the range of his rhetorical tools to draw special attention to this matter, just as he did in introducing the relationship of faith and works, which is closely related to this subject. And as I presently conclude, he's doing and in introducing the next section, which naturally bridges over as well. So faith and works, we're going to see a living faith does what? A living faith is an active, a working faith. And today we're going to see a living or true wisdom. The wisdom from above is a working wisdom. And then in the next section that also opens with a question, it has a similar pattern in the sense of he asks, basically, why are you struggling? Why is there strife? Why are there quarrels among you? After he's just finished this section on the fruits of righteousness being um, sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we see points of maybe potential overt connection and the development of these thematic <laughs> developments here. 
Now, some view this question as a call-out, uh, a correction to those who may be posturing themselves as contemporary sages or wise men. Part of that is because how does chapter 3 begin? Let few of you become what? Teachers. Ah, and so some people, good good thinkers, good commentators, good teachers, uh, some, or there's two different schools of thought in terms of how James is approaching chapter three as a whole or in part there, the first part or the whole of the chapter. Is he talking to teachers the entire time? And so with that, the, the thought, the conclusion might be, let few of you become teachers and teachers, you need to govern your tongue and teachers, you're going to have a hard time. And teachers, who thinks you're wise among you? Because you might think that you fall into that category. And I think there's reasonable grounds to to maybe come to that uh, conclusion, but I don't think it's the best conclusion. I think rather you look at chapter 3, verse 1, it starts off, let few of you become teachers. That's not talking to teachers necessarily. It's saying those prospective people who could become teachers, you need to think about the nature of the disciplining of the tongue. And I would say that the nature of 3 is developed in such a way that it's speaking to all of us. And when we get to 3.13 through 18, I think he's still talking to all of us. And so I don't think it's necessarily a a call out or a correction to uh, maybe a specific group who are posturing themselves as a contemporary sage or wise men. Um, but again, there, there's good, good thought behind that. Um, and part of that's because the combination of wisdom or righteous applications of skillful living and understanding. So who's wise and understanding or um, in the possession of greater knowledge regarding a matter. So the one who's understanding has a what we would refer to as maybe as an expert knowledge of something. So some of us might have a, a dabbling knowledge, maybe a YouTube knowledge of a skill or a practice or something we've learned to do. And then there's somebody that they're really excelled in their, inform, their information and their knowledge of a craft or subject matter. And so with that, you could again regard them as a, an expert in their field. So who's wise and who's an expert as it were? But I think he's speaking broadly. I don't think he's going after somebody that's posturing themselves as a contemporary sage or wise man. I think he's speaking broadly to the larger church body and incorporating familiar language when speaking to a critical element of this letter. Remember, also, the context here, these are believing Jews who would have been well acquainted with their scriptures to include passages that highlight or at least references a reference persons being truly wise and knowledgeable. They would have been familiar with that pairing of terms. And we see that in a few different places, a few different ways. And just some examples, 2 Chronicles 2.12. Uh, then Huram said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, knowledgeable in insight and understanding, who will build a house for Yahweh and a royal palace for himself. And so we have that coupling of wise and understanding. Okay, clearly Solomon was a, was a wise man and unique and stood out in that regard. Uh, Proverbs 16, 21, the wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of lips increases learning. So again, that, that pairing, not always direct, but the pairing of wise and understanding and, and the, the advantages and the, the clarity that's provided with that. Then we have Daniel in Daniel chapter two, verses 21 to 22 Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and might belong to him. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And so again, you have that coupling of wise and understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And again, you also get the clear picture. Daniel is being very overt in terms of where does this wisdom come from? The same place that James would tell us it comes from. And this is why we ask for it in faith from him who gives generously. And then we also have um, Deuteronomy um, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And here um, we see the expectation for the whole of the nation to embrace a disposition of being wise and understanding. Um, Moses states, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Yahweh my God commanded me, that, should you, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. You shall keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So, having that kind of um, standard in view for wisdom, James sets the stage to press a question that ideally we'll find a broad affirmation within the church. Who is wise and understanding among you? Because this is a pattern of uh, language that we're familiar with, that coupling of insightful skill for righteous living and developing a, a knowledge base, as it were. And so he's asking, who? Who among you? 
speaking to the church at large. And just as we saw that that was the expectation for Israel, maybe we should also think and not in a, a, a parallel, but in a, maybe a light context, we, we should expect ourselves, if this is God's expectation that we walk in wisdom, then we should, we should be able to affirm that there are those among us who are wise and understanding. After all, if we lack wisdom, what do we do? We, we ask for it. It's not something that, you know, we all have our different lots in life. Um, some of us are um, unfortunately taller than others, and it's just a difficult lot. You, you don't fit in cars as well. You don't ride in airplanes as well. You bump your head on stuff. And others, we've just been graced with good height. And um, there's certain things that are within your control. And there's certain even uh, cognitive skills and abilities that are within your control. But if you lack wisdom, what do you do? You ask for it. And he gives it generously. It's generously provided. And throughout the first half of the book, it's been made quite plain. We're in need of wisdom. He established that right at the outset. If any of you likes wisdom, and you do, and then, boy, if you missed it there, you just got to walk through those first three chapters and say, I can't do this. And that's okay. You can't. But by means of the wisdom that comes from above, you can. And so you ask. So in asking, I would say this rhetorical question, I do not think James is necessarily challenging someone directly but rather he's pressing us here. He's pressing us to an awareness of the nature of that which we know we must possess. And with this, the aim would be that we transition from maybe who among you to those among you. That would be the ideal, right? That's what we want to be. It shouldn't be who among you, as it's a limited fraction of the group. They want to, to see it develop to those among you. Because this is our aim. Wisdom, not for its own sake, but because it is by wisdom that we will persevere and are made fully mature, complete, and perfect. And so we want that to be true of of us as a church body, as a corporate body, as individuals. And so having introduced the subject by way of a rhetorical question, we have a follow-up for the one who would affirm this identity of being among the wise and understanding. And that is the command who among you is wise and understanding? Here's the expectation. Here's not just the, hey, I'd really encourage you to do this. This is the expectation, the, the imperative that he provides in this opening statement, namely to show, show your evidentiary works, to demonstrate, to put on display, not in some braggadocious way, but the pattern of your life, the works that you bear. Now, for students of James, something should be coming to mind here. Even again, if you're just a casual student of James, we're not casual students of James anymore. We've walked with him too long to be casual students. And so I'm hoping something comes to mind here as he clearly appears to be drawing our attention back to his work in chapter two. Not only by the nature of the opening question, which he uses similar questions in chapter two, but it's resolution as well. Because just as a living faith is a working faith, so also genuine wisdom is a working wisdom. And so who among you is wise and understanding? Well, show me. There will be evidentiary works. Wisdom and understanding show themselves through works that are described as expressed, uh, expressing good conduct and possessing the gentleness of wisdom. So first we have good conduct. One's common pattern of life and practice expressed in an upright and righteous manner. That's good conduct. So again, the pattern and practice of life is expressed in an upright and righteous manner. That's, that's consistent with someone who's truly wise. You can think of it this way. Wisdom has deeds that naturally befit it, just as we have affirmed with faith, but also other experiences too, such as the genuine receiving of the word. So if you've really received and effectually received the word of God, then we see in chapter 1, verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, that's the expectation, you're going to remain in it, not having become a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man would be blessed when he does. So there was the expectation. You've really received the word. You've effectually received the word. There's fruits. There's, there's evidence. There's works. And then verse 28, also of the chapter 1, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Excuse me, I believe that's chapter 2. Um, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so again, there's evidence, there's, there's clear testimony. I believe I have the wrong reference up on the screen. I apologize for that, but we're familiar with one and two here. Um, so again, there's the, the clear evidentiary testimony and works. And now we come to verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Once more, 
Let him show by his good conduct his works and the gentleness of wisdom. So again, just as we observed with the receiving of the word um, and a working faith, so also wisdom and understanding bear themselves out in clear patterns of conduct, good conduct. And that's good conduct expressed in a very precise way. And this is the challenging part for me. Good conduct, you can, you can almost force and fake that. I hope you don't. That's called hypocrisy, right? That's, that's, that's not where we're aiming at. But you can, good conduct, you can almost have a moralistic approach to life. But he makes it even more challenging because wisdom is clear in its patterns. It's good conduct expressed in the gentleness of wisdom. And that qualification may prove to be the most challenging and telling because many people would, uh, would appear to have a public pattern of good works. Uh, you hear all the time, oh, that's a good man. And they really may be. I know I have people in my life that I'm like, you know what? They're an upstanding person. I know if I called on them, they would help me. I know if I needed help, they would be there. I know that if nobody was watching, most of the time, they would do right. They're a good person. They're not in Christ. And so how good really are they? And how much can they satisfy true wisdom? Well, they can't exercise it in this way. Because this is a, a conduct, it's a good conduct that's seasoned in the gentleness of wisdom. And that's not so easily applied. And yet is a critical element of the command to show to show wisdom, because it's a command not just to show works that express patterns of good conduct, but works that express patterns of good conduct, again, in the gentleness of wisdom. And that's the hard part, even for those of us who are in Christ, at least, at least I can speak for myself. And how might we understand the nature of gentleness and its relationship to wisdom? Well, as peculiar as it might sound to some, I've concluded that gentleness is perhaps the, the maturest expression of strength. Uh, you're familiar with meekness as uh, strength under or controlled strength or strength reserved and, and a whole range of things. But I, I would say, again, that gentleness would be perhaps the maturest expression of strength. And maybe a helpful way to think through this was um, to consider a matter of strength on a scale, as it were, not a scale of raw power or ability such as you might see at the, the classical uh, carnival game in which you get the sledgehammer and you strike that pad and maybe the, the little whatever it is, the disc or whatever, hit, rings the bell and whatnot. And that's just raw strength. And I have, um, and I would say due diligence and research is more just curiosity to make sure I actually had terms correct. I found out that you can actually adjust those things. So anyway, for what that's worth, some of you have been ringing bells and thinking big, and it's, you know, they, they're making you feel good. But nevertheless, there, so that'd be maybe a measure of raw strength. Can you slam it down? Where's it fall? Where's it hit? But a scale of maturity is different in terms of that measure of strength. So a scale of maturity that understands the progression of true strength, I think, might be better exemplified with thinking of um, a child in, in a local gymnastics program. And I know not everybody has a point of relation, but most of us have seen at some point in time, the, especially the, the male gymnast on the, the high bars. And these guys are, you might want to poke fun of somebody that has gymnastics, but you're not going to poke fun of them. These are strong guys. And they, they just hold their body in perfect still every so often. You're thinking... Hmm, I could do that. And then you try to stand up and you're wobbling. It's really hard. And so think about where did that, that's one end of the spectrum. So let's go all the way back. And we have a child in a local gymnastics program trying so hard to, to even hold on to the high bar. They're just, they're hanging on. They can't do it. They're, they're shaking. There's a weakness there. It hasn't been cultivated. It hasn't been developed. Maybe their teacher's helping posture them and, and show them. This is what the motion will look like because they're weak and that's okay. They're children. And then they're struggling to keep that grip, and, and they're going to develop over time. And with time, they can hold on and even execute moves, but they're, they're still kind of uh, maybe not just as wobbly, but they're more erratic. It's more of a rush. It's more of a – they do a flip, but it's a – boy, they got to keep that momentum going because they gotta, they're, it's raw movement, as it were, raw strength. But with time, effort, and training, some become genuinely, peculiarly strong. And they hold their bodies in positions of, of perfect balance, as it were. And then you can hold a leg up while their body's turned at a 90-degree angle, and they're just still. That's incredible. That's an extraordinary amount of strength. And it seems to be um, a work that seems to be um, uninformed. Excuse me. And so I, I think about that with the scale with, um, 
the, the weakness to the growth to the, to the full strength. And when we think about that mastery of strength, that's at the end spectrum, that would be gentleness. Because there's no raw, like, look at what I did. It's quite gentle. It's quite controlled. And yet it's the, the, the pinnacle and maturest expression of strength. It's not struggling to hold its own weight. It's not throwing itself about in raw power. It's strength, again, in the maturest expression, keeping a gracious, controlled, even peaceful disposition. And that term is very intentionally picked, and so I'm going to just repeat it again because it was important to James. Strength expressed with gentleness of wisdom so as to be able to keep a peaceful disposition. That's hard. It's very hard. That's why we need wisdom and to mature in wisdom. And this is perhaps why James has to ask, not just for rhetorical purposes, but maybe even for other reasons, who among you is wise and understanding? Maybe that should hit a little bit differently because initially it hit, we said, ah, rhetorical question so as to, to introduce a subject to kind of get our attention in a different kind of way to, to, to press us to think about the wisdom from above. But also now having walked with it just a little bit even and coming to the nature of the works and the nature of expectation and the fact that it should be framed in gentleness, I now have to think about that question again and I cannot imagine many truly are wise and understanding among us. And I'm not looking like, I see this crowd, not many wise and understanding. That's not the issue. I'm thinking about myself and I'm thinking about just how this is a hard standard in which he is laying out for us. As knowledge it's reasonably attainable by a variety of means and opportunities. That, that part, maybe we can, we can get. Work hard at it and get it. But cultivating good works and the gentleness of wisdom, that's quite something. That's distinct. And perhaps this helps us better appreciate the nature of our receiving wisdom too. We ask in faith, and what happens? We receive, right? It, we genuinely receive. If you genuinely ask in faith, you can know you will receive wisdom. And so we ask in faith and receive wisdom. That is, we receive enough wisdom for the moment in proportion to our maturity and progress. And then we're engaged with more trials, more needs, and more opportunities. And so what do we do? We ask again, and we ask again, and we ask again, bearing more works, putting a living faith on display, persevering and growing as our wisdom is matured and seasoned in gentleness and thereby becoming a truer expression of the wisdom from above. And with this, joining the company of those who are wise and understanding, a matter that's shown by our good conduct and the gentleness of wisdom. Not words that show off superior insights. That's not wisdom. Not words that cut others down. That's certainly not wisdom. Not words and retaliatory, uh, or not uh, retaliatory squabbles with people, as though. Because of my superior insight, I'm going, I'm the world's theological policeman. That's not wisdom from above. But good works exercised with mature strength of gentleness. That's hard. And so we might progress from, I'm not wobbly anymore. Watch this. I'm slamming the hammer and it's dinging the bell. Well, that's, congratulations. That is progress. That's good. We want progress. But can you exercise that strength under control, the control of gentleness. That's really challenging. And so I think James maybe, maybe he's prodding us a little bit. Who is wise and understanding among us? And perhaps one of the most striking examples of the gentleness of wisdom was provided in the account of a man who is spoken of in a bit of uh, just a few chapters of the book of Acts. He doesn't have a lot of real estate, but I can mention his name, first name only, and you'll be like, ah, yes, Stephen. You know Stephen. Very little territory in terms of the, the matter of pages and chapters he covers and the scriptures and the testimony of the early church. But he stood out to you. Maybe he stood out to you because he was the first martyr, but the means and manners of his conduct ought to stand out. And so first note how we're introduced to him. There was a need within the church for the service of those in need of mercy, namely widows. So basically there was the job description, who will exercise pure and undefiled religion? And they had qualifications. And with this, we pick up the qualifications of those who were selected to assist the apostles in this work. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, and then not just good reputation, but full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who may be, who may be put in charge of this need. Wisdom is very practical, but it was righteous wisdom for good deeds. 
So we see that Stephen was a good man, a man of good reputation, known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. And shortly after this, we read a report of some of his broader ministry work that he was busy about as well. Verses 8 to 10. And Stephen, full of grace and power, and was, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what, is, what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Syrians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and were arguing with Stephen. But they were unable to oppose the wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. And so we have here, he was, he was also full of grace and power as he ministered. And though challenged, others could not oppose the wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So quite a, quite a resume and an image and a picture we're getting of him. And finally, after giving a sweeping lesson on the progress of redemption from the earliest testimony of the scriptures all the way to the crucifixion of Christ, his opponents could no longer restrain themselves and responded in murderous reaction. Chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. Now when they heard this, they became furious in their hearts and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But crying out with a loud voice, they covered their ears and rushed at him with one accord. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen, full of the spirit and wisdom, boldly declared the gospel and it ultimately cost him his life. And yet, even in the violence of his final moments, I would argue he demonstrated a profound, even supernatural gentleness. His opponents gnashing their teeth, covering their ears. You don't have a more violent, more just overreaction, uh, just violent and, and just big response as they took up stones to murder him. And it's Stephen, gently, graciously, full of the Spirit of God, full of power, full of wisdom, entrusting himself to his Lord and petitioning for their mercy. There was no ambiguity as to who the strongest man in that crowd was. He was the man filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. He was the gentle evangelist petitioning for the mercy of wicked men. That's the nature of wisdom, abounding in mercy, compassionate. And you might think, well, that sounds like such a weak person. If you think there's weakness there, then again, maybe you didn't read the account with this. He's clearly the strongest man in the group. A man that could answer James's rhetorical question in the affirmative as he indeed was wise and understanding and as such could show by his good conduct his works and the gentleness of wisdom. And while Stephen's story perhaps seems so far out of reach, I would remind you that it was in gentleness that we also or to have received the word of God. And so you may think like, well, I can't exercise that kind of gentleness, but it was very reception of the word of God by you. In James chapter 1, verse 21, we read, therefore laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and gentleness, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And having, it, having received it, we were expected to put it to action, but become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And in obedience to receiving and applying the word of God, we find that gentleness marks the mature believer in restoring one another. And so we recognize from the very outset, we may not have been strong in expressions of gentleness, but it was what introduced us to the receiving of the word of God. And now it's going to continue to mark us because now we've received it in gentleness, we put it to action. And what does that action look like? Well, among other things, it includes restoring one another. And how? Well, Paul states for us in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, even if someone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. He's not saying beat them over the head, shame them with all their your unique insight and all the errors that they made and all the dumb choices they made to put themselves in that spot. You exercise strength of wisdom and you restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And we continue on, we see in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, and the Lord's slave must, be, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, Patient when wronged, 
with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. That's not, again, shouting them down or flexing your, your raw spiritual muscles, as it were, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And in obedience to the receiving and applying the word of God, we find that gentleness marks the mature believer in exercising love for one another as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And in obedience to receiving and applying the word of God, we find that gentleness marks the mature believer in the bearing of the fruit of the Spirit and our growth in grace. So Galatians 5, to 23, and then Colossians 3, 12 to 13. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then we progress on and as we're growing in grace, so as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against another, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. And this is the testimony, the testimony of one who is truly wise and understanding. They exemplify the clear works through their good conduct exercised and the gentleness of wisdom. So, while difficult, wisdom can be evaluated, but not on paper. There is no, there, you know, there was a season that maybe they're still popular. There's personality test, spiritual gift test, test for this, test for that. You can't test wisdom. You can't, can't get a piece of paper and be like, demonstrate your wisdom by, bill, by filling in the little scantron. Wisdom is tested through the expression and faithfulness and conduct of life, and specifically good works exercised in the gentleness of wisdom. And the singular question for that examination might be, has knowledge of truth been married with works? So knowledge, good, that you need knowledge. It's not just that we're walking around with, I think God's this and that. No, no, no. It doesn't matter what you think. What did the scripture say? What's the testimony of the word of God? And so you marry that with works, with actions, with demonstrable conduct and things that can prove and, and, and work themselves out. And having said, and having said this, the, so as knowledge married works, now has those works married a spirit of gentleness. Okay, and maybe now you're wise, or you're getting wise, or you're growing in wisdom. And that being said, when I began working more closely in this passage uh, some two weeks ago, I was, before I was even working in Psalm 15, I was already starting this and and if you look at one of my whiteboards, it's there. It's the one on the that's on the floor right now. It's not because it's been demoted. It's just there's only so much room. And you'll see that I have a circle and a, a circle inside of it. And I'm thinking, here's the wisdom from above. Or excuse me, there's those among you who are wise and understanding. And then there's the larger fellowship. And I'm trying to understand. I was puzzled over the, the phrasing of this opening question, namely, who among you? And I was puzzled because it sounded like a subset within the larger faith community. But again, are we not all expected to be wise? Well, as I stated earlier, I do think the design of the question, again, is to open this new section in such a way so as to press us and even challenge us as we consider the weight and complexity of its subject matter. But I do wonder, who is wise and understanding? Cognitive facts are often within our grasp, at least within a reasonable amount of work, and good works are what we do our best to exercise throughout our day. That's true, but doing such in the gentleness of wisdom that's just going to take time. And the seasoning of having persevered through many trials will forge that progress as well. So if at any time in our study you've heard me press you hard on the expectation of maturity and perfection, and I've been in context when I, I took teachers at their word, which has caused some heartache for me, when, they, when teachers and professors and whatever would say, you do everything with excellence. I'm like, excellence, okay. And I tried, and excellence is really hard. And then I'd see my peers, their excellence would be, finish the assignment. I'm like, Pooh! and that's how you finish assignments in some context. And I struggled with that. And so I, I'm very sympathetic to when I say you have to be perfect, mature, complete, that some of you may be feeling crippled by that. And, and that's okay to an extent, because maybe that presses you to, to cry out for wisdom. 
but that being said, I, it's not my objective, nor James's, to cripple you. And so when I've pressed hard on being the expectation of mature and perfect, then I hope you'll also hear, hear me clearly now with the qualification. It is an expectation. I, it really bothers me when people take commands and imperatives and list of qualifications of scriptures and they say, well, those are ideals. I didn't see the asterisk. Where was it? Where did he say, just kidding? He didn't. They're not simply an ideal. It's an expectation, not simply a goal. But it's also an expectation that is shaped by walking wisdom's long and challenging path. It's expected, but you have to recognize this is a long game, a path that will strengthen you to gentleness. And that's a path which you will be ambushed by various trials. You will suffer. You will struggle. And all by design, because in that process, you will cry out for wisdom. God will give you wisdom. You'll persevere. Perseverance will have its perfect work, and you will be made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And then you can hit the reset button, and it's going to happen again and again and again. So don't get disheartened by, well, I don't have that kind of gentleness accompanying my works. Well, I hope you do to a degree and that you're progressing and will continue to progress. Now, from the opening question and its associated command to show testimony and evidentiary works of genuine faith comes a most striking contrast. Again, we're familiar with contrast. James really enjoys those, and it's helpful as a teacher. And so James 3.14, we have James's commanding introduction of wisdom's counterfeit. It'd be a more concise uh, engagement here. So I know um, if you're looking at that was one verse, don't worry, we're moving. And it's, again, the contrast that he set us up for. So here's the commanding, of wisdom's counter, the commanding introduction of wisdom's counterfeit. James writes, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. It's really strong language, isn't it? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. I, I would say maybe this is another example of James using severe or strong or even exaggerated language to press his point for us. And, I'm, and by exaggerate, I don't mean like, oh, James, you can't take him what he says. No, there's a, there's a use of strong language to drive a point. And this is strong language. Because selfishness betrays a lack of godly wisdom as the works of selfishness do not reflect love or care for others, a living faith, or a bridled tongue. And so it's strong language, but it's fitting language. Rather, selfishness is the companion of lust, which when fed, grows. And when it grows, what does it do? James told us. It grows up and it murders. It kills. This is the alternative to the path of wisdom, which maybe that's a terrible word. It's not an alternative. This is the, the other path. Don't treat it like an alternative, like, well, what will I choose today? There's no choice in this. It's because it's a path of ruin. You don't get a third alternative or a third option either. Therefore, we need wisdom. He's driving us there again. You need wisdom. Wisdom is God's means for our persevering well, and our persevering well produces, again, maturity, completion, and perfection. It is a hard path, and it's progressing, and progressing in it is challenging. But to take on a posture of selfishness and calling such wisdom, that's to embrace a profane counterpart. So to say that, well, wisdom's path is really hard, and I like it my way. I don't like suffering, struggling, and I... Frankly, I just want what I want. And there's, there's wisdom in this that's counterfeit. That's a profane counterfeit. Now, with that said, note the language that James, again, uses here. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in one's heart. Again, rather charged terms. First, jealousy or, or zeal. So this can be a neutral term. It can be zealous, enthusiastic for something, but it's accompanied very intentionally by bitter a term only used one other time in the New Testament, and that was in the immediately preceding passage where James asked, does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh and bitter water? There it was used to express the contrast of the morbidly inconsistent nature of the unbridled tongue. And here it qualifies that this is not just an open expression of zeal, but a bitter or vile expression of zeal or passion for something, namely oneself a disposition that most naturally pairs with selfish ambition in one's heart, which itself is a passionate pursuit of one's own interest, not, excuse me, one's own interest, one's own needs, and one's own desires. Qualities that reek of this world, which demands that you do for yourself. Boy, if 
if there is a, a philosophy or an engagement with contemporary culture, just make sure you take care of yourself. Well, I'm a fan of that. I mean, I, I, I did take a shower. I, I brushed my hair. I didn't need to cut it, and it's getting poofier, but I, I'm taking care of myself. I do for self. But that's not what it's getting at. This is a feeding what you want. So do for yourself, using the language of I need to do right by me now. Such a morbid selfishness. It's a system obsessed with self-care in the most perverse of ways. And every affirmation and every like, as it were, and every encouragement towards such things is an amen for that which sees God's wisdom as nothing short of foolish. And so even when we passively, like, yeah, you, you do for yourself. Mm, that's not wisdom from above. Wisdom from above is so others-oriented, so giving, so merciful, so willing to overlook, so willing to be gentle in good works. And how much more plainly could these offenses be when it comes to contradicting what James has expressed as pure and undefiled religion and keeping of the royal law, both finding their clearest expressions in sacrificial service to others? Pure and undefiled religion, meeting and taking care of widows and orphans and and the fulfillment of the royal law, exercising mercy toward those in need. And where else might we find such expressions of counterfeit wisdom? Perhaps we find them peppered within a list of the deeds of the flesh, a list of disqualifications for the one hoping to be found approved and thereby receiving the crown of life. Remember, that was part of what James is driving us to in chapter 1, that we persevere and that we work and strive in such a way that we be found approved and fit to be rewarded with the crown of life. And you want to, you want to circumvent, you want to challenge, you want to upset that prospect? Well, embrace the deeds of the flesh which include such matters, as we see in Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, other like uh, other things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, this is not an alternative path. There's the wisdom from above, and then there's the way that just I do things. That is not an alternative path. It is a path to destruction. Now, whereas we were pressed with a clear foundation for the wisdom that comes from above, with it, expectations of conduct, works, and gentleness, here we're a bit dumbfounded as to how someone might walk in such a morbidly selfish way and claim on their resumes, as it were. People are falsifying resumes all the time, getting caught for it. And how dare us on our spiritual resumes to say, I have the wisdom from above, and, then, and that we've been, uh, we possess the wisdom from above that God expects of us, and then walk in such a morbidly selfish way. That doesn't work. There's no endurance. There's no perseverance. There's no pleasing God in that. To this, James gives a pair of commands in response. What does he say? He says, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Boy, there's a, there's a few ways you can push people's buttons. Look at somebody and say, you're so arrogant. That'll win a lot of friends. Get you invited over to dinner more often. Or probably not. Or calling someone a liar. Even, even liars don't like to be called liars. And they're lying to you while they're doing it. And said, don't call me a liar. I'm not lying as they're lying. And yet James is doing just that. Stop being arrogant and stop lying against the truth. Do not glory in your morbid selfishness and falsely call that wisdom. Such a course of conduct is an assault on the integrity of truth. Your promoting of yourself under the umbrella of the gospel is a lie. Stop the arrogance. Stop the lying. Earlier, when working through the, the weight of gentleness... We considered someone from Acts. So I was able to give first name, Stephen. A lot of things came to mind. I hope more comes to mind now. We're going to consider two more persons, only by first name also, and some other things are going to come to mind. As we now consider this matter of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, again, two names, Ananias and Sapphira, which really begins with the, and their story, you might say it begins with Acts chapter 5, but really I would argue begins in Acts chapter 4 where we read kind of the backdrop for it. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, yep, that one, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a field, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that was Acts 4, 36 to 37, the conclusion of Acts chapter 4. Then we begin Acts chapter 5. Luke didn't put these chapter breaks in. We did. 
So what we have here is Barnabas' exercise of an act of great charitable sacrifice, which, again, is an act of, of care and service for the church. It did have a measure of public awareness. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't not recorded. We know about it. It didn't go unnoticed. And that's okay. I, I don't, of all people, Barnabas was not like, just sold some land. Hey, I just sold some land. You hear that? He's not getting everybody's attention. It didn't go unnoticed, though. But unfortunately, Ananias and Sapphira proved to have an appetite for not going unnoticed as well. The difference is Barnabas happened to go un- not go unnoticed. They wanted to make sure they didn't go unnoticed. The difference being their motivations were rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And again, you can say, well, how can you know motivation? Well, I can deduct it based off of conduct and outcomes. So they, I would argue, were rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as it was to make a name for themselves by way of deceitfully withholding temporal things while securing temporal glories. Acts chapter 5 begins with, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, sounds familiar, here's the difference, and kept back some of the price for, them, for himself. Not a problem in and of itself with his wife's full knowledge. So now we have conspiracy. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your or why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard. And the young men rose up and wrapped him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there was an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you were paid this much for the land. And she said, Yes, that much. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband." quite a dramatic story. One account of death, because it was an expression of good works expressed in the gentleness of wisdom. Another account of two deaths expressed in the wisdom from below that mocked and lied out of selfish ambition and deceitfulness toward the truth. Ananias and Sapphira lied. They were zealous for themselves. They were selfish. They lied. And God dropped them dead on the spot. And now James is plainly stating, plainly commanding his readers, that if you're governed by selfishness and yet would claim to walk in the wisdom of God, you are being arrogant and also joining the company of those who lie against the truth. And so his command is, stop it. It's not ambiguous. He just is saying, stop it. You probably will not drop dead in a moment, so thank God for his mercy and stop this indulgence and a counterfeit expression of wisdom that is no wisdom at all. And know that if not today, that in due time, such a path will lead to your destruction. So stop it. Okay, so now we've covered the first, two, the first part. The first part is two sections. First being James's commanding introduction of wisdom. He expected certain things. What did he expect? Show, show me good works in the gentleness of wisdom. James's commanding introduction of wisdom's counterfeit. What did he expect? Well, he says this is the nature of the alternative, the wisdom from below, which he's going to unpack further in the next few verses. But he, he introduces it with a clear command, a pair of commands. Stop it. Stop lying. Stop being arrogant. Stop lying. Stop it. And then, with this, our aim for next week will be to cover the remaining portion of the section where he continues to develop, um, the second part, verses 15 and 16. And with that, we're going to walk through the origin of wisdom's counterfeit. Where does it come from? Well, you've probably heard a number of times that, that quick, uh, quick listing of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, here you go. The world, the flesh, and the devil, or the, 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 the earthly the natural, and the demonic. It's how James frames it. That's exactly where it comes from. You want to understand where does this counterfeit come from? Well, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The outcome of wisdom's counterfeit will be explored, uh, which is disorder and every evil practice. Again, there's no, well, you know, I do my thing. There's no, my, I'm doing my thing. It is destructive, and it will bring ruin. And then the third part, verses 17 and 18, 
where we walk through the origin and nature of true wisdom that comes from above. Now we're going to get those. He's working aggressively on that board. We're calling out things and we're starting to see, ah, that's wisdom from above. And he's going to unpack that for us. That it comes from our good father. And with this, it's wisdom, uh, we're going to see wisdom's rich range of qualities. Foremost among them, that it is pure. And finally, we'll examine the outcome of true wisdom, the fruit of righteousness, which itself is sown in peace. And as we advance through these matters, we'll see James' demonstration and articulation of wisdom become ever increasingly clear for us. He may not say, textbook definition, this is wisdom, but he's going he's to unpack it and he's going to tease it out. This is what it's not. This is what it is. This is what's expected. This is how you can understand it. And he's going to develop it. So wisdom Again, it's going to be made increasingly clear. Wisdom that, as we've observed today, commands us to do something, commands us to demonstrate its presence in our lives by way of our works and the gentleness of wisdom. And the proper recognition that a morbidly selfish expression of wisdom is no wisdom at all and must be forsaken. And so now we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And what are we going to do? We're going to do what we hopefully have a pattern of doing. Having known the kindness of his wisdom, we're going to ask for more. We're going to ask, Lord, would you grow us in wisdom? Would you continue to provide it? And would you give us the grace to walk in it so as to even be exemplifying the the pinnacle of strength with gentleness? So let's go to the Lord in prayers. We uh, close this time and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. Lord, we thank you that um, James has so skillfully Um, pressed and even not forced but always kept wisdom before us Um, it's only been mentioned in the opening verses but it was always always very plainly there always helping us to to reach that objective that goal to be perfect complete lacking nothing by what means well because we're going to persevere how do we persevere by means of wisdom and so lord would you give us the grace to walk in greater and clear wisdom not to uh, be arrogant, not to lie against the truth and so embrace a selfish expression of what we want as though that's some form of wisdom. It's not wisdom at all. It's not even really wisdom from below. It's just it's carnal, base, wicked thoughts that are filling in the place that wisdom so generously deserves to be put. And so, Lord, would you help us to walk in that and help us to, um, to strive that our lives if not now, that perhaps more tomorrow, certainly more by next year, and certainly more as we grow closer to to enjoying your presence, that we might be able to say when James poses the question, who among you is wise and understanding, and that our lives would be the ones that maybe rush to people's minds as they think, I'm not yet, I want to be, I'm pursuing that, but they are, they really are, they're walking in in the gentleness of wisdom, They're, they're demonstrating those works, they're showing evidence of these things. Lord, we need help to that end. And so we pray that uh, we would not view it as some ideal. You give us expectations and you give us the enablement to meet them. And so would you be pleased to help us to that end? And Lord, we thank you that um, you have given us an opportunity to reflect on the finished work of Christ and that um, because of that, that we can join James and identify ourselves as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ as he who is wisdom. And so, Lord, we look to you and pray that our lives and our walk would be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.